Join us for the next episode of Bourbon with Beagle as I have a raw and illuminating conversation with Gen Xer and acclaimed author and psychologist, Dr. Anson Service, about something that affects a huge part of our population, but is only recently being discussed, adult autism. We will explore the ways autism has been treated or not, what autism can look like depending on your age, and ask, what does abnormal even mean? I will be drinking Heaven's Door. What about you? I want to welcome Dr. Anson Service to Bourbon with Beagle, a talk on the rocks. And today we're going to talk about autism, specifically across generations, but older individuals. And I always ask two, two questions, Anson. What generation are you in? I am Gen X. Great generation. And the other question I've been asking folks is, what is your personal philosophy of aging? Good question. I, the funny thing is, is the older I get, the less philosophy I have on aging. <laughs> I'm beginning to understand that, uh, that man, so many factors go into this. I don't think I have one anymore. I really don't. It, I mean, so many factors as far as health and environment and uh, like you name it, and it's going to affect something and, and how I feel about it. So yeah, I guess, I guess my, my answer is none. <laughs> nah. So it's kind of like we talked a little bit about this and it's a spectrum. Absolutely. Yeah. From, from that, depending on different factors that we have coming into the aging process. So with autism specifically, uh, how does that kind of affect an individual through the process? We have younger, middle-aged individuals and then older. How does that affect, how does autism affect each one of those generations? Oh, man. See, the interesting thing is, is the first case of autism wasn't even really identified until uh, the 1940s. And it was based on child, children, basically, young boys. At this point right now, when we fast forward to current, current uh, year, we're now finding autism uh, <laughs> exists in older individuals as well. Which we already knew, obviously, but it, but it's it's just a completely different animal than when they're when they're young children. So young children might have certain behaviors and and features and traits that you would consider abnormal. And yes, that continues on through the lifespan. But at the same time, uh, it looks very different. So depending on what age you are, developmental level, even the developmental level is is probably more appropriate rather than age because some people. Are develop at a much different rate than other people within the right. autism spectrum. And so what do you mean by abnormal behavior? How, what does that look like? If you were to get a basic definition of an autism, it's, it's essentially, you're right, it's a spectrum. There are a lot of traits and features that usually become more apparent and identifiable when it's in early childhood. So some things that an earlier, uh, not necessarily infant, but a child might, might exhibit is failing to um, attach to the parents in a way that would be typically expected, not having eye contact. And, and I, I want to really stress the idea that this is not every single kid with autism either. It's, sure. uh, it's, it's some of them have this, and these are the core features that they've identified in that being, having challenges in uh, imaginative play with other children having a lot of sensory issues, everything from seams in the socks to tags in the shirts. And some of these can continue on through every phase of life, every, every age. Uh, but some of them can be kind of, you know, go away or become decreased as they get older. But some actually even get worse and, and different features might pop up uh, later in life. Like, for instance, a younger child may be socially... Uh, excited, like really excited to be in social situations. And then by the time they hit high school, they may shy away from social situations. And then by the time they're adulthood, um, it creates so much anxiety to be in a social situation that they, they may have anxiety disorder because of that type of thing. So it, it really, it, it, spectrum is the magic word here. It's, it's really a wide, wide spectrum, very deep, a multidimensional spectrum. I know a lot of people want to think of it as like mild to severe and it's not like that. It's, it's a, it's a universe of different right. features and traits that come and go. So, so a lot of times I know individuals that have been 
tested and diagnosed like in their 40s and 50s. Is there, how do you establish that they are probably on the autism spectrum? You do that by testing or by how does that determine? Yeah, that's a good question. Like I said earlier, we're in a very interesting time right now. This is, this is basically the birth of adult autism diagnosis right now. And yes, it could be uh, diagnosed earlier on, but I, I don't know what the percentage of clinicians that actually, number one, know autism well enough to diagnose it in anybody, but then again, one step further, know it enough to diagnose it in adults uh, is almost, it's almost zero, like percentage-wise. It's very, right. very small. So essentially what we get is we get people who have lived their entire lives. This is what we're seeing in our, in our clinic anyway. People who have lived their entire lives and they may have been diagnosed with borderline personality disorder or bipolar disorder, depression, anxiety, uh, schizophrenia. I mean, you can go, you go down a whole list of different diagnoses. And then when the, and it's not to say those are wrong, by the way, but oftentimes when they come in, they're kind of at their wits end and they're like, I don't know what's going on. I keep getting all these different diagnoses. I've been inpatient, maybe not inpatient, but like I, I don't know what's going on, need some answers. So when we end up doing testing and we find out, oh, guess what? Autism spectrum disorder, it answers a lot of questions. So right now, the interesting part is social media has brought this to um, everybody's or a lot more people's awareness, I should say. Right. So we've got uh, apps like Facebook and Instagram and TikTok. And on those platforms, people are starting to gravitate toward other like-minded individuals, people who have a, have a similar brain pattern uh, functioning. And they're starting to find out, oh, that's what I do too. Oh, you do that? I do that too. And, and once these little evidences start to stack up, then they start to identify uh, like more closely to the idea of being autistic than not. And so that's when they oftentimes will come in for clarification mm-hmm. on that. A lot of people coming in, they already they already have an idea. Um, some have even been self-diagnosed for quite a while and they're just coming in for, for clarification to end imposter syndrome, to, <laughs> to, right. to basically get some validation for their, their concerns. And so right. uh, and that makes it a lot easier when they've got a better idea of what's going on before they get here. But, and I have two questions regarding sure. that. One is when you work with, say, somebody that is aging, 60, 65 and on up, uh, and they've never been treated for this autism type of spectrum. How does it, would it benefit to have that testing done to determine whether some of the behaviors, some of the issues that we have in them going into later life would be based on autism, not necessarily these other diagnoses? Oh, absolutely. Yeah. Being able to clarify like, uh, oh, I'm not border. I don't have borderline personality disorder. What I have is undiagnosed autism and I've, somebody's missed it their whole life. So testing is interesting because we do about anywhere between five and 12 different tests mm-hmm. on people when, when they come in for an assessment. And we want to make sure that number one, we're hearing them correctly on everything they're saying. So we come at it from every angle that we possibly can. Right. can. And not only that, but these tests are typically normed on a, on a massive population of people. So so when we're, when we're doing testing, it's not, it's not doctor service saying, Hey, you know, I want you to, you know, have this diagnosis. It's not like that. It's no, it's, it's the data. And we say, right. Hey, based on the data on however many millions of people who've also taken this test, you score at the 98th percentile for autism spectrum disorder. And again, that's just one test. And when we combine that with another six or seven that all kind of say the same thing, then it, it kind of takes a lot of the, the guesswork out of it. One of the main benefits is that people have, have made, the human mind really wants to make sense of itself. It wants to know where it exists in this world. And when you grow up autistic, but you don't know you're autistic, we tend to have other people tell us who we are and what we are. Mm-hmm. Um, we tend to tell ourselves what we are based on outside information. So. People may come in and say, you know, I, I think I, I just grew up really stupid or, oh, I'm just, I'm just a, a B word or I'm just like, I, I just need to have my space all the time. Here's a good one. 
when people say, I'm sorry, I just need to say what I think and I don't care what anybody else thinks, you know. Mm-hmm. I, there's all these things, they take on these different identities and really when, when we bring this diagnosis to, to light, suddenly it's, I can't tell you how many people sit across from us in tears as, as all the pieces start to fall into place in their life. It just answers a lot of questions. Right. Now, is the testing the same f- across the spectrum from ages of children to middle age to older adults? Is it the same type of testing? Oh, that's a great question. Absolutely not. <laughs> yeah. In fact, Gary, I'm so glad you asked this because, <laughs> oh, this is such a frustrating thing for me. I, I said earlier, there, there, are, there aren't that many clinicians that test for autism right. adults. And so one of the things that we've been seeing I'm on some online groups, by the way, with people uh, throughout the world who do autism testing on adults. So we get to we get to get together and commiserate and and uh, identify, you know, trends and things that we're seeing throughout the entire world. But one of the things that's been happening is um, people will go in for an autism diagnosis, and number one, they'll either be immediately basically shoved off and say, "Oh, you can't be autistic because you drove here today," or "You can't be autistic because you made it through school," or you can't be autistic because you made eye contact with me during our conversation. You know, they come up with all these things and a lot of uh, not only medical professionals, but mental health professionals have these, these outdated ideas about autism that aren't true. So here's one of the big problems is they'll say, okay, we'll do some testing. And then they'll pull out testing that's intended for, for, uh, you know, four-year-olds or 12-year-olds. Um, and then they'll do this on somebody who might be the principal of high school who's in for testing. And I'll tell you right now, that's not an appropriate measure to use for somebody like sitting across from somebody and, and reading a children's book with them to identify, you know, nonverbal and, and communicative, you know, deficits is not going to work with somebody who, who is, you know, again, Mm -hmm. like CEO of a corporation or running their own coffee stand, you know, those things just don't work. So they, they've been traditionally getting a lot of false negatives because using the basically inappropriate measures on autistic adults. So there's huge issues. So yeah, a lot of the testing is very different from throughout the ages. Now, I will say this one, one more, I'll add this, that depending on their developmental level, some of those tests might be appropriate for different age groups. So I've tested some people in their 20s who maybe during cognitive testing, meaning like IQ testing, they test a little on the lower side. And in cases like that, sometimes it's okay to to use some of those other tests, but, but there are, are tests specifically developed for adults that are more sensitive right. to these types of things. So there is a misconception, I understand from you, that high functioning such as CEOs and things like that have autism, but they've dealt with it in, as they've gone through their life. And so they've kind of adapted. Is, is that a fair statement? Oh man, you are, you are smart. You're, you're onto this. <laughs> no, what, what, yeah, that, that's exactly what's going on. It's more like what you said there, they, they've dealt with, uh, they've worked out a lot of workarounds. So for instance, a, a child who's in the fifth grade, uh, let's say uh, just as an example, a young boy who's on the playground in the fifth grade who gets beat up several times because he keeps saying things that are inappropriate. Um, some of them will learn really quick what they can and can't say. They'll watch sure. other people like a hawk. They will adopt other people's phrases. They'll adopt the way they behave and act. And they'll say, okay, that kid did not get beat up. So I'm going to emulate what he's doing. Again, a lot of this is maybe unconscious, but yeah. they're just watching carefully, uh, pulling in behaviors, and then emulating those in, in a lot of different ways. So a lot of workarounds as far as social things go. If somebody really, really, has a hard time with social situations. It may take them two or three days to recover, but while they're mm-hmm. out in the social situation, they may be the life of the party. They may have right. the greatest jokes. They may have all, I remember one fella uh, that I tested, he learned how to be hilarious. And the way he learned how to do this is by carefully analyzing groups of people. And he actually made algorithms in his mind about certain phrases, how to say them, when to say them, and he would test them out on groups and eventually he became hilarious and he was hilarious. Yeah. <laughs> but, but I mean, that's just kind of, there's a lot of workarounds that, that people come up with. 
And the biggest problem here with the workarounds, though, is we call that masking in in, mm-hmm. in autism. And the longer you mask and the, the more benefit you get from masking, the more difficult it is to to drop that mask when when you can feel like you can become more yourself. So sure. Uh, so a lot of these adults, uh, like what you were asking about in their 50s, 40s, 60s, they've masked their entire life, not because they wanted to to fit in, but because they had to for survival reasons. Right. And, and they're not about to drop those masks now because it's worked well for them to a certain degree. Right. right. But and yeah, a lot of, a lot of, uh, a lot of pressure there to be normal. Exactly. And they become very successful. Absolutely. So I, I think a lot of times we think if you have autism, you don't have the skills necessary to be successful. And that's not true. So I think they have been. What about older individuals that start losing their cognitive abilities and have an all uh, autism diagnosis? How does that play out? If you, do you say if they do have an autism diagnosis? Diagnosis and their cognitive deficits are now appearing as they age through the process. Yeah, you've probably uh, shined a light on one of the greatest research holes in autism right now is uh, research based on older individuals, especially those that are reaching uh, the sunset of their lives, the ones who, um, they just don't get tested. I mean, excuse yeah. me, there's not a lot of research on that right sure. now. So still trying to figure out what that looks like for a lot of individuals, especially ones who've been misdiagnosed. Right. Some of them are living in care homes. Um, some are living independently. I, I brought up the uh, very first uh, person who was uh, diagnosed and he was diagnosed in the 1940s. And interestingly enough, he's still alive today. And he apparently is living in Mississippi and is uh, living a really full life, you know, driving golf cart around and, and working and doing all the other things. Or, you know, he was. I think he's yeah. uh, approaching 90 years old now. But anyway, he's, he's, he's figured out life and how to live yeah. it on his terms. Yeah. Then you have people like um, Sir Anthony Hopkins. Mm-hmm. You know, he... He's been diagnosed as autistic, but he uh, obviously he's figured out his his life to some degree. At least that's how it appears on the outside. And that's actually a really good example of masking as well. He's he's so good at masking that he can take on whatever role he wants and (laughs) And star studded performance. (laughs) Exactly. Well, I think a lot of things that I see is the masking drops away. Uh, as the cognitive deficits come up. So some of the maybe behaviors we're seeing, we're thinking is something else entirely, but it's really been there all the time and we just need to to treat it now with a different approach. Uh, yeah, I would agree with that. I, I think the normal aging process already suggests that that's, that's a real thing. I mean, everybody to some some degree will mask throughout their right. life for the most part, but uh, but as you as you know, and you work with uh, quite a few individuals uh, that would, that would, uh, you know, be like this as they get older, some of their cognitive faculties decline to the point where they're no longer able to, to, uh, you know, keep up the charade right. any longer. Exactly. Um, the difficult part there is what, what we do with those individuals. Do we respect them and their, their history and their wisdom? And, or do we just kind of shuffle them off to a home somewhere and to be forgotten. And that's why it's so important to have people such as yourself who, who actually care, <laughs> care about these people and can help take care of them to some degree. So, well, I, unfortunately, we shuffle them off. And uh, that's one of the discussions we've had in the past uh, with some of our, especially generational groups is, yes. how do we change this image of doing adult family homes, skilled nursing homes, assisted living, when other parts of the country, the world does not do it that way. So that's a discussion for another time. Sure. But, uh, absolutely. I'm, I'm really kind of interested in urban versus rural oh. and lack of services in those areas. And especially in the world, I mean, take India, for example. Sure. They don't have the same type of benefit we do in the U.S. with even probably the testing. Right. So I know you do uh, some in rural areas. Uh, testing there versus urban. Is there a difference or lack of services or? or? Oh man, the lack of services is, it's so pronounced. It's, uh, I've actually tried, I've attempted twice now. I've got one practice that that does well here in Vancouver 
but I've attempted two other practices in rural areas and both of them has failed. And it wasn't because of a lack of need. In fact, there was so much need. It was an overwhelming amount of need out there. The resources were actually there uh, in terms of like insurance coverage as well. Right. What I had a problem with was finding uh, qualified professionals. That's what I had a problem with. People who, number one, wanted to move or at least, you know, travel to Mm -hmm. an urban or a a rural area to to do just even just therapy. I Mm -hmm. found it. I found it so difficult to find uh, people to do that. Not only that, but how to pay them enough to make that worth their time, I guess, has been the sure. either. So my hat goes off to those people who, who serve in the rural communities, because apparently I, I don't really like the city very much, but apparently a lot of people like to be in, a, <laughs> in an urban environment. <laughs> yeah, exactly. I would rather be in a rural environment. But, right. You know. right. And unfortunately, it's state by state. Um, Absolutely. I have, I have a cousin that's autistic in Oklahoma and there's oh. extremely lack of services. Oh. We're up here, we have a little bit more. So I think the states are also playing into the picture of lack of services just because of cuts to budget and their their whole you know, their whole idea of we don't provide these services because other people should and we just don't want to be involved in that diagnosis. Yeah. And to go to go a step further, uh, I received several messages a day from people uh, throughout the country or the world. And I'll get them every once in a while that will be people from other countries that are lamenting the fact that they can't get tested in another country. Sure. Um, one of my friends, he, he just told me that he is on a six year wait list for this. Um, well, he told everybody, he said it online, but a six year wait list for autism testing. And that's in Canada. So that's just that's just our neighbor. And yeah. if you're on a six year waiting list to get, get an autism assessment. I think that's, that's ridiculous. And then yeah. we have other uh, countries who they won't even look at, at testing adults at all, period, because adults don't have autism. That's kind of the idea right. out there. So it's not even, not even a thing in uh, some countries or at least in some areas of some countries. Now I do recognize there are probably there are people who are very proficient and up to date in these things in other countries, but right. I, I would sure love to uh, get with them, you know, work out an alliance of sorts, <laughs> see if we can get this information out to more clinicians, because I think that's the key. And why do you think there's a lack of research? I mean, large institutions, hospitals should want to do some type of research on this, and, and it appears that they're not in older adults. Why do you think there's a lack of that? I think, I think the first problem is that it's not recognized yet amongst okay. most uh, medical professionals. And, and I mean, th- they'll recognize it, but they'll do it in the form of, of Rain Man, you know, mm-hmm. uh, or in the form of the good doctor, you know, that's the idea of what ought to, or, or the person who's completely dependent on support for other people uh, right. who lives with parents or lives in a group home of some sort. So that's kind of the idea about autism. Uh, I had a, an experience not too long ago where I accompanied somebody to the emergency room. This was during COVID. And the reason I accompanied them, because I am a huge advocate of having a medical advocate with you when you go to the doctor, if you are on the autism spectrum. Right. And the reason for that is because sometimes there can be communicative differences and you might not convey what you need to convey. Thus, you won't get the treatment you need to get. And, you know, it just prolongs uh, the whole right. problem. So anyway, went into this emergency room and gatekeeper at the door stopped us and said, only this person can go in. And I said, well, I can, I'm, I'm the caretaker. So they said, and they looked at both of us and like, okay, whatever. And put us on through. And then we went and waited in the waiting room. And when the nurse came out, uh, she called this person's name. And we both got up and the nurse said, oh, I'm sorry, only this person can come because of COVID guidelines. I said, I am uh, the medical advocate and uh, this person is diagnosed autistic and I'm there to advocate. And so the, the nurse, it was the, it was the strangest thing. I felt like time slowed down, but she looked this person up and down from head to toe and said, just a minute and left for five minutes and came back out and said, yeah, I don't have any record that, that you're autistic. So you're going to have to, you know, just come in alone. And, uh, that happened not once, but on two different occasions in the last year, just with me as an advocate. And that's just me. And I don't even do this hardly ever. So, 
So this is our probably our biggest problem with research is that there is this idea about what autism is and isn't. And, and right. I want to say it's woefully behind and it, it really needs to catch up in the medical yeah. community. Well, I think that Brent has another question for me, which is we know what low, what a person on the lower end of the spectrum looks like. What does a higher end spectrum individual look like? Oh, that, yeah. Uh, great question. Um, so the DSM in 2013 changed. And DSM. No. Oh, is sorry. Small. Yeah. It's the Diagnostic and Statistical Manual. Uh, it's through the American Psychological Association. Basically, it's the, the and book this we is use with all the disorders in it. Yeah. yeah. Okay. So when we go to diagnose somebody, we look up in that book what the criteria are to meet diagnosis. Mm-hmm. And just this morning, you know, had to go through and bit by bit, line by line, go through and make sure this person met or didn't meet criteria for, for autism spectrum disorder. But Is that in 20- because of insurance billing? Is that how it's? How they uh, make- no, it's it's mainly just to guide clinicians. Uh, okay. Yeah, the insurance codes are a whole different thing. Uh, okay. We got another two bigger books <laughs> <laughs> that have insurance code information. Okay. Well, that's a whole other discussion too, Gary. We need to talk about that sometime. <laughs> Absolutely. But uh, uh, the uh, 2013, they changed it to be uh, levels of autism. So we has le- have level one, two, and three. Uh, level three means it's a person with the greatest need of support. Oftentimes mm-hmm. it looks like somebody who is um, completely dependent on other people financially, oftentimes physically, maybe hygiene isn't being uh, tended mm-hmm. to on their own. And that would be, you know, appropriate for a group home, uh, living in the parent's home or sure. a loved one or family. So that's what a level three looks like. Level two is somewhere in the middle where you've got somebody that needs help, but you know, can still possibly live on their own and hold a job. But, you know, we're having frequent meltdowns and, and uh, just, just problems, generally speaking, mm-hmm. a lot of sensory issues uh, that's v- that are very apparent. So basically it needs somebody to help them out. Like me going to some, with somebody to their doctor appointment, that's a mm-hmm. great example of being with somebody who might be level two autism. Okay. Uh, and then we have level one who uh, had the lowest amount of support needs but here's the issue is um, that's just what we see on the outside. So if we say, oh, you're a level one uh, autistic individual, you have the lowest amount of support needs. They might, they might say, no, that, that can't be. You have no idea what kind of support I need. I look like I hold it together on the outside as the manager of a, of a restaurant or whatever, uh, or waiter or something like that. But like inside, I'm dying. As soon as mm-hmm. I get home, I melt down. I, mm-hmm. I, I take hours to recover from this. Um, sure. And it's everything I've got just to pay a bill or to, you know, make a phone call. I can't make phone calls. So, so yeah, it, it's, it's not perfect. That's, that's for sure. So the high, <clears throat> excuse me, the high and low functioning labels, those have kind of gone away for the most part, but I think they're used because of ease and it's easy to understand them a lot. Sure. Level one, two, and three with support needs is uh, the official uh, reference to that. And so Sir Anthony Hopkins would probably be a one, I would say. Yeah, possibly. I, possibly I, I would, one. yeah, I, that would be interesting to see how he is, you know, offset off camera. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> the, the, the other question is, does the testing give you enough inter- information and data to put them in one, one to three? Oh yeah, absolutely. Some of the tests that we run are called adaptive, uh, functioning tests. And adaptive tests are basically designed to um, identify limitations and strengths like in daily life, like how, how you are getting up and doing things and interacting and, and mm-hmm. uh, you know, just basically can you live life on your own or not, you know, sure. what kind of difficulties or challenges you have. So, yeah, that's part of the testing process as well. Well, g- good. And so we've talked about testing. Let's talk a little bit about treatment. What oh, are some yeah. treatments for these individuals that is out there? The, uh, probably the number one treatment that is known about that people uh, engage in is uh, something called applied behavioral analysis or ABA. And this is probably one of the most controversial treatments in existence right now. And, and, and usually it's and what only- does it, What does it stand for? What, what does it stand for? Uh, uh, the, the, yeah, it, it stands for applied behavioral analysis. 
Gnosis. Uh, okay. ABA. And you said that earlier. Evidently, I wasn't listening. So, oh, that's okay. <laughs> uh, the <laughs> reason it's one. so controversial <laughs> is because uh, essentially the idea is to take a set of behaviors and then apply some sort of uh, system. Often it's behaviorally based system, uh, reward consequences, and then in, in an effort to change behavior, to change the outcome of what's going on. Okay. So this, in, in the history of this treatment, it's got a rather sordid history, actually. Uh, again, back from the uh, World War II era, and a lot of autistic individuals who've been through it consider it to be cruel. They consider it to be a punishment-based system. That mm -hmm. they, they believe that it's uh, designed to help them figure out how to look normal. Uh, and of course, the translation to that is, oh, so we don't make everybody else uncomfortable with who we are as individuals. That's kind of the sure. idea behind it. Now, on, on the uh, flip side of that, I've heard many parents speak praises about ABA. And it's a very intensive therapy, by the way. It's the most popular. It's probably most often the only therapy available to autistic individuals at a young age anyway. But a lot of parents like it because it's a, they say, oh, my child was doing nothing but biting himself and throwing things in the house and screaming constantly, uh, or at least many times throughout the day. And then when I took him to ABA therapy, you know, that helped him to maybe gain control of his, his behaviors and thought patterns a lot better. So, you know, and whether that's true or not, uh, I don't know. That seems to be what they're experiencing. We also have to consider that there's a development that's occurring as well. So if somebody sure. is in ABA for four years and they go from being one style of behavior to another from the ages of three to seven, uh, you're, you're, going to see, you're going to see changes in behavior anyway, even without ABA therapy. And is there any studies or data on how successful this is? Yeah, well, the, the studies are uh, interesting because a lot of them come from, a lot of the results come from the parents and from the clinicians. Okay. So they're identifying certain behaviors and they're saying, oh, we were able to decrease, you know, self-injurious behavior by 80% over the course of the year. And, and that's good by, by uh, most people's standards. But, but again, once these uh, children are out of ABA therapy and they get into adulthood, if right. you want to get on Google and type and have an interesting read, type in autistic adults, what they think of ABA therapy, and you'll get, yeah. you'll get an eyeful. It's, it's quite, uh, it, they, they have a lot to say about it. Again, uh, most of them considering it abusive and uh, a terrible practice. So now sure. on the flip side, uh, there are opportunities for other types of therapeutic interventions to be uh, carried out in the course of ABA therapy, or right. at least what they say is ABA. So uh, rather than using, say, shock collars or something along that, which has been done in the past oh my um, God. For, for bad behavior, rather than using that, a lot of ABA places, I, I think they just out, actually stopped using shock collars like several years ago. Um, and when I say several, I mean like, like maybe three or four years ago. Really? <laughs> From what I remember, yeah. It was not too long ago that they stopped using shock as a, as a deterrent for certain behaviors. So- but, you know, a lot of kids, they'll, they'll engage in different types of therapy with the therapist, uh, like floor play. Uh, so it's basically just a lot of interaction. That's a lot mm -hmm. of teaching sure. the alphabet and, and, you know, different, different skills, brushing your teeth and, mm -hmm. and, you know, things that are really good and positive. But the issue is, is that a lot of those very good positive behavior, uh, interventions are being interwoven into the ABA framework. Um, so ABA in and of itself, people are saying, oh, ABA works really well, but really what they're seeing is a lot of other therapies that have been added into ABA that it's not ABA therapy. So, but again, okay. this is a huge, huge controversy. So, so, so that was just one thing. Yeah. One in ABA, do they actually uh, take and customize that for the, the individual or is it just one type of behavior and they, it, they make it fit for everyone? Yeah, right now it's very customizable. It's supposed, to be, it's supposed to be very, um, yeah, unique to each individual, but there is a, a strict framework. Okay. Uh, I know there's not as much like schooling necessary mm -hmm. in order to do ABA therapy. You have to go through a cert certification process, but you can do that with a, uh, an associate's degree. 
I'm not sure exactly what the latest is on that, but yeah. but all I know is you don't have to have a licensed therapy, uh, you know, background in order to do that. So these are usually the ones that are threes that you would ha- find this appropriate therapy if, if it's selected? Yeah, I don't even know that that's necessarily true because a lot of people, once a child is diagnosed with ther- uh, with autism, a lot of the recommendations go straight to, uh, we recommend your child instant or immediately engage in ABA therapy. And the, mm. the funny thing is, is for a lot of kids, this means um, three to five hours per day, three to five days a week. So really? some, some children can get 30, 35 hours of therapy per week of this ABA therapy. Mm. And I don't have to tell you uh, how much money uh, is right. involved with that. <laughs> I'm sure. That's a lot of money per hour. <laughs> and and probably if you're in a rural area, you would have to drive. Oh, yeah. Some if distance even, if yeah. you could even find it in these, some of these areas. Is, so ABA is used primarily on younger autism. Right. I, I've had I've had some uh, people come and ask for letters from me, uh, hoping to get into a- ABA for their 20 to 30 year old, you know, mm-hmm. individuals. But I don't know if that was successful. I, again, I'm, I'm not sure what really happened there. But but I th- okay. typically speaking, I think it's it's mainly just used mostly for children. I think I think right. a lot of adults, I think I found that the best therapy for adults who um at least the ones that I've had experience with, mm-hmm. the best therapy has been uh, humanistic therapy, uh, person-centered therapy, therapies that are based on, uh, I already like you for who you are. You're not broken. You're not, you're not okay. disordered. What it is, is you live in a world that's very difficult to navigate with sensory issues. You live in a world that's right. very duplicitous by nature. And since your mind doesn't always work that way, this can create special problems for you in your right. life. So. I try to to go from more of a uh, let's figure out how you work in this world rather than you're the problem and you need to change and you need to be like everybody else. So we don't want to go that route. We want to go the other. And I think that's a big distinction between any therapy is you just meet the individual where they are and realize that uh, how they process things, how they do things is quite different from other ones uh, in doing uh, that process. Our society has tended to be on medications. Uh, We like a, we like a pill to fix everything. So uh, is there any medications out there that is, uh, first of all, that's used, but is there any type of research being done and development of other drugs that may be effective in these with autism? Yes. So far they've found absolutely nothing that's been effective. Really? Or yeah, absolutely nothing. They've done some research uh, uh, on oxytocin. So that, uh, I'm not familiar with that. Uh, yeah. Oxytocin is, it's, uh, another word for that is the cuddle hormone or the love hormone. Uh, <laughs> it's, it's a hormone that's produced when you meet and engage with a friend and identify some sort of belonging to them. Right. It's a hormone that's produced when you have an orgasm or uh-huh. when, uh, it, it's necessary for a baby and a mother to, to do nursing and, and mm-hmm. during, during birth. So it, it plays a vital role. It's probably, one of the most important hormones, I believe, when it comes to um, autism traits and features, because lower levels of this hormone are thought to be linked with different traits and features that, you know, are associated with autism, such as uh, what the world sees as not being attached to other people or right. various various things like that. So, yeah. So what they've done is they've had a couple. <laughs> they've had a couple clinical trials, or not a couple. I'm sure they've had more than that, but they've found. In, with some limited success, uh, doses of oxytocin can can help uh, you know change a person's behavior and the way they think in a way that makes the what you would typically see as autistic traits de- de- decrease. However, there have been no nothing beyond that, so not enough to say, "Hey, this works." Basically, okay. it might show some promise in some regard, but but there's nothing. So not only that, but I think the majority of the studies, from what I remember, are done on men only because women have uh, varying oxytocin levels uh, throughout the, the month. So it's so they wanted to, I guess, eliminate a lot of confounding variables. So this is sure. men only. <laughs> so there there are a lot of a lot of issues there. Now I will say this: one of the uh, comorbidities, uh, which is another word for another disorder that might uh, be right there along with autism, 
is is ADHD. So Mm -hmm. attention deficit hyperactivity disorder. There are three types. There's attention only, there's hyperactive, and then there's combined where you're both inattentive and hyperactive. And there are medications for that that work rather well for a lot of people. I've heard a lot of good things, uh, Ritalin, Adderall, different stimulants. And so the funny thing is, is like if you're diagnosed uh, as being autistic, the chance of you also meeting criteria for ADHD is very high, somewhere around the 70% level, somewhere around there. Now, uh, they've also done research where they've just gone in and taken people who've been diagnosed with ADHD first and said, hey, let's also uh, test you for autism. They found around 50% of those people are getting an autism diagnosis. So when you say, is there a a medication for autism? Not necessarily, but uh, there is for ADHD and it's most often a co-occurring disorder that helps. So it's a dual diagnosis. Correct. Yeah. And then you get into anxiety and depression. uh And there's and obviously a lot of great medication options you know, for, just for that. Well. Absolutely. What about genetics testing oh. and trying to determine whether autism is genetic, has a genetic trait to it? Has there been any studies on that? Yeah, I've read, I've read studies that go up to 78% uh, is, is what's suggested to be the genetic factor there, a genetic uh, disposition for passed down from parents. Oftentimes when somebody comes in and they get an autism diagnosis, if we get into the idea of genetics, they start to go, hmm, you know what? Come to think of it, my dad and I were just, they were the same. And Mm -hmm. then they can go up the family tree, one side or both sides, and start identifying traits and features. And it doesn't mean necessarily we're going to diagnose everybody up their family tree with autism. But they identify traits and features that have, have been persistent that they remember in their family line, uh, very consistent with autism. But again, back then there wasn't autism. There was just right. like, Hey, there's that guy who, who just likes to be alone. <laughs> right. You know, exactly. And down in the South, we tend to say those people are just, they're, they're on their own path and be okay. Yeah. And, and they're just out there. So that's very true. On that yeah. One. Yeah. Yeah. So, and when we talk about autism, you and I talked a little bit, there is really no, no one talking about this issue in aging out there. How do we make it more of a subject? Because it's out there. How do we advocate and how do we get this to the forefront? I believe there has to be money in it. I think if there's money in it, then it's going to get attention. Um, yeah. There's a lot of money in autism itself. We've got a lot of uh, different organizations that, that claim to you know, be autism advocates and some really are, they're, they're quite fantastic. And, or the other organizations, um, claim to like speak for autism and, uh, they do it, uh, in my opinion, a pretty terrible job of, of mm-hmm. advocating and speaking for autism. So, uh, yeah, I think if money were allocated for that, then there would be far more opportunities. Not only that, but I've, I heard one writer say, it's not fun to study older people. And, and maybe that's true. true. I don't know. Very true. Uh, from what I understand, like once your child turns uh, 18 or 21, your services are pretty much cut off as far as social services go right. regarding autism for the most part. Um, and, and again, some would posit that, oh, maybe it's just not fun to, to, you know, not have kids hanging around doing fun things. <laughs> I don't know, but well, that's one thing. So really what we need is we need, uh, legal advocacy. We need like state sponsored uh, bills mm-hmm. to go up or representatives, you know, at the, the, at the political level, something needs to change there in order for this to get more attention, maybe get a lot of doctoral students start doing their dissertations on it. That would be sure. a fantastic opportunity as well. Absolutely. I think what really is out there on the aging population is we can't find anybody willing to go into the, the field, gerontology. Oh, we, wow. We I have, didn't know that was an issue. That is a huge issue. Huh. We only, I think I have one gerontologist in the entire Portland metro area. But it's wow. not, it's, and the other thing is the uh, Medicare reimbursement rate seems to be lower in those categories, which uh, if you have a huge student debt stuff, you're going to go the other options than in gerontology. But when we talk about older individuals and autism, there seems to be, 
a, a lack of understanding it in the facilities. So they'd rather treat the behaviors and symptoms than really look for the true diagnosis and then build upon that. Is that something that you think is is a correct statement on that? Right. I do believe that's correct. Uh, and, and I think the sad part is a lot of the symptomatology that they're looking at is actually indicative of something else. So mm-hmm. if somebody comes in and they've had uh, severe angry outbursts, they might say, oh, this person, they need heavily medicated right away. Right. And you're going to stay on this medication, which again, poses its own set of complications with side effects and, and things like that. But you know, look a little deeper and maybe we found an autistic individual who um, has such massive sensory problems and maybe they're in a work environment that's not accommodating to their needs and and they're in a home environment that might not be uh, the best uh, place for them to be as well. So uh, I always think of it as as it just builds and builds and builds. And then once you get to a certain point, it's that, that straw that breaks the camel's back and it all unleashes. And, right. and then we have massive angry outburst. And, and the worst part about that is a lot of them, again, um, may have difficulty communicating what's really going on. So you'll right. get a lot of, I don't know, or right. even worse, they won't go in at all. Uh, they might get taken in. Right. And the saddest part is when you get law enforcement involved who are not trained with autistic right. individuals and they don't know what they're looking at. They might be looking right. at a drug addict who's, uh, you know, on some sort of wild drug that's making them erratic and uh, right. it's a surprise what they're going to do next. Uh, and, and there could be some major consequences to everybody in, right. in those situations. So yeah, just treating the symptom is not, is not going to work. It, it never will work. You have to identify where the core is at. And usually again, that's the benefit of the testing for autism is saying, Oh, this, I think we've found a major uh, reason for a lot of the ways you are. So now start learning about it. Exactly. I, sensory uh, overload, it tends to happen uh, I, with our clients. It's yeah, really you probably pre- have a lot of that. During, during the holiday season, because oh. that's, that's when all the people come in to sing, all the activities <laughs> and all of that good stuff. And I've always said, you know, that some people just, this isn't their thing and we just need to to kind of do it a more quiet type of thing and not really pressure them into participating. And when they say to one of our clients, well, this person's not participating in activities, I said, well, they did participate when they were younger. What makes you think they're going to participate now? And they haven't changed. Right, right. So, so you just think automatically putting them in a facility setting, they're going to all become uh, you know, involved and engaged in all this stuff. That's just not going to happen. So it's always interesting to me around the holiday season, I can tell you, we have more behavioral issues uh-huh. uh, during that time. And we have a lot more people check out and pass cool. away during that time. I think they just said, I've had too much of this. I'm just going to call it quits. Oh, okay. And, and we see that happen a lot. Oh, I'm sorry to hear that. That's uh... well, I am too, but it, it, it's just, you know, it tends to happen during that time of year. And I think it's the overload and everything coming into it that just drives these behaviors. Uh, because if you have to sit there and listen to Christmas music all the time, uh, you're probably going, I don't like it. And I don't wonder why am I here? And so you're going to behave. So they'll take you back to where you can have a quiet setting. I think, I think that's an excellent point being made that uh, we have to ask ourselves, who, who is it that's uh, organizing these things? And it's typically going to be a neurotypical person who, you know, really loves Christmas and they've got all the great ideas and they've just been hired as a, as a coordinator for the right. activities. And so, yeah, to most people, it, it looks great on the outside, but yeah, it's probably a special kind of hell going on inside people's minds, um, specifically, uh, think about the, the flashing lights. So, yeah. uh, something about me, a little self-disclosure is I am, I am completely surrounded by autism all the yeah. time, every day, all day. I've got family members with it. I myself have been diagnosed as an adult with it. And, uh, it, it's one of those things that, that I understand so deeply and so intimately that, that I totally get it. So for instance, a trip to home Depot for one person might be just fine, might be a little aggravating. You can't find the price tag of something or, you know, people Mm -hmm. come up and ask you questions, but to a person who's autistic on the spectrum, it's a whole, it's, it is literal hell being, and you have, you have the worst noises on earth, clanging pipes and 
beeping um, forklifts and then you got people approaching you and some people don't smell great. That's a thing. And then you've got uh, overhead lights and like luckily in the Home Depot or something like that, it's a lot better. But uh, but you go into a lot of places and like going to a movie theater, terrible for autism in a lot of regard, um, especially right. when you get trailers uh, that are coming up at first that have a lot of flash flashing blinking lights and you've got if you don't like the smell of strong popcorn then then that's an issue if people are sitting in too close that's an issue you can hear the person in the very back corner you know whispering to the other person and now that's all you're thinking about these are things that i've heard a lot of people talk about and it's one of the one of the reasons i'm so uh passionate about this is because i experience a lot of these things but maybe not to that level of what i'm describing but I get it. I, I totally get it. Sometimes it's better and sometimes it's worse. So it just depends on who you are and, and what you have going on in life. Cause again, there's something I call transient uh, traits and features for autism, which means uh, you might have it today and then tomorrow or next week and might not be that bad or it might not be existent at all. So it right. just kind of depends uh, on who you are and where you're at. So I totally get, I totally get what you're saying about the, the holiday season. And, and if you're living in a world that doesn't accommodate you and doesn't understand, and they keep pushing you to, to participate in things you don't want to be in, I, I could, you know, depression, checking Absolutely. out medication yeah. issues. I mean, we can start piling on all kinds of different uh, reasons why Absolutely. somebody might say, I think I'm done here. You know? Yeah, exactly. Well, Anson, I want to thank you so much for our discussion on autism. I certainly learned a lot uh, about it. But again, uh, I've always appreciated you for your passion that you have for autism and working in that community. Well, I appreciate that. I I appreciate your work with the uh, individuals who are in need help and their different family circumstances as well. And I will plug, uh, you have have videos out on subjects. You have podcasts. I just read an article in Spectrum magazine oh, that yeah. you did uh, and doing that. So if if anyone will also put up uh, how to, to get some of your materials and do that on our website and on our uh, Facebook and LinkedIn page. So if anybody's interested, we'll have that information up and available. I appreciate that. A lot of the stuff on those videos, by the way, are things that I wish I had time to tell people after diagnosis. So. Right. Um, so it's really good to point somebody who may be thinking on those lines and be like, hey, go look at these because this is just I only have an hour with somebody after I give them yeah. a feedback session to to give them all the information. I can't do it. So I began making videos to to be able to disseminate some of this information uh, to them. Absolutely. And so I've watched, I appreciate that. Thank you. I've watched a few of them. They're excellent. So Anson, thank you so much. And um, we'll catch you on the flip side. All right. Thank you. Thanks for tuning in to Bourbon with Beagle, presented by me, Gary Beagle. Be sure to subscribe to Bourbon with Beagle on Spotify, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you are listening now. I would like to thank my producer, Dan Bruton of SignalCast, and my digital media and marketing specialist, Aaron Haley. Without them, Bourbon with Beagle would not be possible.